You're listening to a Wheels on the Ground production. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Clonawilly.com. Clonawilly and Clonopussy are do-it-yourself molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a sex toy at home. All materials are ethically sourced and 100% body safe. If you shop at Clonawilly.com right now and use the promo code DARKPOD at checkout, you can get 20% off site-wide. Wow! That's a deal that cannot be cloned. I talked to one of the representatives the other day, and they are more than willing to answer any questions you have about how to make your own clone willy or clone pussy, how to use the kit. They're so, so willing to go on this journey of cloning a willy or cloning a pussy with you, and they're super nice and super responsive to any concerns. So if you want to pick up your own clone willy or clone a pussy kit right now, head over to clonawilly.com and use promo code DARKPOD, that's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout right now. And remember, this is a deal that cannot be cloned. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. This is a podcast that looks at disability stories. It's like sitting down with a really close friend to have a real conversation about disability, sexuality, and everything else about the disability experience that we don't talk about. The things about being disabled, we keep in the dark. Here is your deliciously disabled host, disability awareness consultant, Andrew Gerza. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. Thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I am, of course, your disabled daddy, Andrew Gerza. Let's get comfy, cozy, crippled, and comfy again, because I forgot what I was going to say, and get the show started, everybody. Shall we? Let's do it. First things first, I hope you enjoyed the extra bonus episode this Thursday for International Podcast Day. And again, I want to thank you so much for your support and for listening to the show and for being a part of this journey as the show grows and expands and the format changes a little bit and I do different things with it. Thank you so much for sticking around with me and for giving me a platform to share my thoughts, to share my thoughts with the guests and to do all these different things. And for really having a space and having a library of resources through these conversations to bring disability and to shine a light on these stories. Because it's, it's really a, a passion project of mine. And thank you so much for your um, dedication to this and for 
following along with us. It means a lot to me. And I just wanted to, again, say thank you so much. And I'm so excited to bring you new series within the podcast feed and new ideas. And I'm just really, really excited that we're going strong. Thank you. Just want to give a little reminder, too, that we have a merch store and there are 35% off deals happening all of the time through the awesome people at Tee Public. You can get a shirt that says shining a bright light on disability stories in purple with some really cool font in a white shirt. You can get a t-shirt, a long sleeve shirt, a sweater, whatever. There's a so, but there's 35% off deals for this merch all the time. And I would love for you to pick one up if you so fancy want to do that. So, um, Head on over there. The link will be in the show notes. And have a look and see if there's anything you like, because I'd love to see some of you amazing listeners listen to the show. Or, let me try again. <laughs> Obviously, you listen, but I also want you to buy the merch if you so choose to do so. But no pressure, just putting it out there. Also, if you can't or don't want to buy merch, but you want to support the show monetarily, you can go to our patreon.com slash disability after dark which means you can pledge as little as one dollar a month or five dollars a month or more or even a yearly amount if you want to do that patreon.com slash disability after dark and that means you'll get our mainstay show one day early all of the bonus shows i i tried putting the first episode of Cripology up on the Patreon, but then I, then I was just like, you know what? I don't want to. I don't want to put anything on a paywall. So the only way that I'll put it on a paywall is to put the main stay show on Saturdays up on Friday on the Patreon. But everything else will pop in the feed, like the Handicast, like Cripology, like any other bonus things that I want to do, will just pop up up as I want to release them because I feel like asking you to pay. For stuff that I want to give away and I want to share this knowledge with you is tough because I know that a lot of the populations that listen to my show don't have a ton of money. So I don't want to ask for a bunch of money. But if you want to support me, I would really appreciate it. Patreon.com slash Disability After Dark because I make this award-winning program in my bedroom by myself. So if you want to support the show in any way or you're able to, that'd be great. If you can't support the show financially... Go to any podcast catcher and leave us a five-star review. Tell me how great the show is. Tell me how important the show is. Tell me why you listen. Tell me what the show means to you. Just to get the algorithm gods paying attention and to get the show some new blood into it so that people can listen and know that it's out there. But uh, enough of my rambling. Let's get on to who we're going to talk to today. Back in the early summer, I had the pleasure of sitting down with my new friend, the Rainbow OT, Dev, who works out of New York, upstate New York, I think, and they came on the show to talk to me about how they were navigating whether or not they felt like they had disabilities. We talked a lot about how they um, imbued queerness into their practice as a occupational therapist and why queerness should be part of their practice and some of the some of the triumphs and challenges they had trying to be a non-binary queer person in the occupational therapy field um, and I thought that was really really important to talk with them because 
most of the time, in, in, as I'll say in the interview, you'll hear me say, my experience of occupational therapists have been white cis ladies who are very nice. But I think Dev was the first non-binary queer OT that I really got to sit down with, I think, um, and really explore gender identity, queerness, and all those things in relation to occupational therapy. And he and I talked about how being an, an OT who is queer and non-binary impacts his practice and impacts how they navigate the world. And it was just a really fun, important interview with him. And we had a really important chat that I'm really, really excited to share with you. Um, and I hope that you, that if you're thinking about becoming an OT or thinking about working with an OT or you're a client of an OT and you're queer too, or you're a, you're a queer OT yourself, um, you think about this interview and think about what he's saying with respect to what it's like to be a non-binary queer uh, person in, in the occupational therapy space. So that's really what our inter interview talks about a lot today. I really, really enjoyed sitting down with Dev, and I hope you enjoy the interview right here on a brand new episode of Disability After Dark. Dev New, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm doing so well. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming on Disability After Dark. Before we dive into the questions, can you introduce yourself a little bit to the audience? Tell us a little bit about who yeah. you are and what you do. Uh, my name is Dev. Um, I'm an occupational therapist and a director of rehab in a facility in New York. I specialize in um, educating on sexuality and intimacy topics. I am a board member of COTAD, the National um, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Justice Board for OT in uh, the United States. And you may know me as the Rainbow OT online on Instagram and via my website. That's how I got it. That's how we got it connected because you you reached out to me and were like, I'm the Rainbow OT. I want to come on. Actually, actually, no. Another OT that I spoke to, whose Instagram handle I can't think of right now. Is it Dr. Tiku? That's right. That's Dr. my Tiku, girl. Who was just on my show really recently. Yes, she was. Said, said to me, you should get in touch with the Rainbow OT because they want to talk to you. And I was like, all right, cool. So she is the one that connected us. And here we are now. Well, I'll have to send her an extra thank you. She's a dear friend and a magical person. Oh, she was a fantastic interview. And I'm sure just like this interview will be also fantastic. So so the first question that I ask everybody, and it's funny because we've talked about this off the air, but the first question that I ask everyone is, what are your disabilities and how do they impact your day-to-day -day life? And then when we were talking like a minute ago before I hit record, we were having a discussion about that. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, um, so I'm I'm a lifetime listener of this podcast, and I know that you asked this question, and I've heard people navigate kind of some unpacking with this question, and I didn't anticipate that happening for myself, but here I am uh, having to unpack some stuff. So when I filled out your questionnaire, my answer to the question, if I identify as disabled or have a disability, I said not applicable, which isn't true. And then I um, I live with PTSD and anxiety that is at times crippling, and I also have a heart condition. So, um, you know, I, I have things and I don't know, I was trying to unpack it, and it's quite a large thing to unpack, and I don't know 
It's For not sure. that I don't consider those things as maybe providing barriers or obstacles in my life day to day, or maybe more si- more so at time, more times uh, than others. But I started to think about why I may be conditioned to not think of those things that aren't visible as disabilities. And that's kind of where I start to think about when I, in the past, have talked about struggling with anxiety in college and not being like literally not being able to to get out of bed or get something done um or getting i my anxiety presents very much so in my body somatically so i get uh ill uh very ill really quickly especially when i'm not in tune with what's going on with my my mental um state so um you know i had to navigate that in college at times i couldn't i couldn't get things done and and i wasn't viewed in the same way as someone who may have a visible disability would be in trying to navigate like resources. Um, so I think that's maybe where a large part of it comes from is just chronic invalidation of what I live with. Um, but I, I still think I have more to unpack there because my where I'm at at this moment is very different from where I was at and filling out the questionnaire even a week ago. So wow, wow. Um... Well, I, what I would say to you is the journey of, of entering the disability space is not linear. Doesn't, you don't go from one piece to the next piece. You can go in circles. You can go steps backwards. You can go way forward and then you go back again. So what I would say is take your time with it. You don't have to unpack it right away on this podcast. Like there's, you have no obligation to be like, yes, I'm one or the other. I think it's interesting that you are now interrogating that, but I don't, don't worry if it doesn't come all together right away. Yeah, I, I, I don't see it being a linear process because it's already been quite a roller coaster. <laughs> so um, I, what I said to, to you in the beginning is, you know, you asked this question to everyone who's on the air and I, I listened to their responses, but it was a lot different being asked myself. I didn't think of it in the way that I've thought about your discussions in the past. So I appreciate the question because it's helping me arrive to somewhere where I didn't arrive to before. And I mean, that again, like I said, it's a journey. It's a, it's a, it takes time to get there. And I mean, I, I am visibly disabled, but I also have invisible disabilities that I live with. And I am constantly interrogating what those means, what those mean on a day-to-day basis. So don't feel like you have to make any concrete decisions. Um, so, I mean, let's go the other way. Let's, let's go to the other part of that question, which was if you, if you weren't to identify disabled, as disabled, what has your experience been with disabled people? Hmm. Um, well, I'm an occupational therapist. So um, primarily my caseload, in, and I work in adult and geriatric populations, typically that's my happy space and more so even with those who experience um, neurological conditions. So um, I, I, my mom is really kind of where, it's gonna go all over the place, but- I'm ready. Um, yeah, very, very thankful for my mom in that um, she raised me to, to just be friends with everyone and, and not not see differences, but not hold myself back from experiences because of, you know, seeing differences in other people or, or people that didn't look like me. So from a young age, I was that person who sat at like the weird table. I mean, I also was very openly, well, uh, I was very queer at a young age too, and I me knew. Me too. So I, <laughs> I, I also was very queer at a young age. So I, I understand this exactly. Yeah. So I was already like one of the weird puzzle pieces, the weird kids from an early age. So I kind of just like hung out with 
the weird kids and some weird kids, you know, some of us, I guess, who were classified as weird kids had disabilities, some had uh, different ethnicities, some had different gender identities or, or sexual orientations. So um, that's kind of where my like passion for advocating for the underdog, so to say, or, or people who are perceived to be that way started at a young age. Um, I started working uh, at BOCES in uh, New York, which is uh, an agency that services people with um, you know, special needs or disabilities. So I started working as a personal aide actually for a young individual who has CP. And- um, The best of the palsies, the best the, of the palsies. The best. Oh, he's- It's the best He's one. incredible. So that just further launched me into um, wanting to make a, a life out of it. And I kind of just stumbled upon OT from having different interests and not having something that encompassed everything. And OT is kind of like, you can almost do anything. So um, I've, I've always just kind of been interested in spending time with, with all types of people, um, including people with disabilities. And that's kind of what got me to where I am today. That's cool. I mean, and now that we sort of know that you might be a disabled person yourself, might be as you as the journey continues that makes sense now and i like i like how you know you say that your parents taught you not to not see difference but to not equate difference with prejudice mm -hmm. and so you and like i love how you said you kind of sat with the weird kids because we would have been friends because i also sat with the weird kids so i get it we would have um, so been friends. We would have been, <laughs> we would have been definitely friends. We would have like hung out and watched The Little Mermaid. Been, things would have been great. It would be great. Um, um, let me pull up my next question because I'm a professional <laughs> podcaster. Uh, so one of the things that I would love to explore with you in the questionnaire, you mentioned that you wanted to talk about how mental illness impacts physical health. And we mm. kind of touched on that with your anxiety and... Um, I was wondering if, if, now that I know you have anxiety, I was wondering if when you, when you were answering that question, you, or when you were pointing that point down, were you talking about yourself? Um, you know, I was talking about myself definitely in a sense, but I, I think I'm more so talking about the entire queer community um, in the sense, uh, a lot of what I, I educate on is, is very simple things like what the letters mean, um, but also talking about the experiences of queer people and how um, particularly those who are gender diverse or trans have, you know, up to or even more than a 50% higher chance at experiencing suicidal ideation or making an attempt at taking their life or harming themselves. And so I've gone down kind of this rabbit hole of looking into the objective data and the research, not that we need to medicalize people's identities, but it helps objectify what their experiences are. Um, and so there's a lot of things that we experience just by existing as who we are that plays into our mental health or mental illness. And then when that's not managed and that's not attended to either by your healthcare professional or by yourself, that almost always ends up in some sort of uh, negative physical outcome. Um, and I think a real crisis, a real pandemic, if you will, not in, in uh, parallel to the coronavirus, and it's also worsened by COVID, would be the experiences of increased um, mental illness across the, the world, that we're seeing more and more people experience these, experience anxiety, live with depression, live with other mental illnesses that play into their physical health, and it's the cycle that's never broken, and it perpetuates, especially for uh, minority 
ties to our marginalized communities, it's at such a heightened rate that um, we're obviously not doing enough or anything about it if we're still in 2021 seeing statistics that are the same from 10 years ago that there are uh, LGBT plus folks are at a 60% higher rate to experience overall anxiety or depression or 50% um, higher rate than their cisgender counterparts to experience um, suicide ideation or make an attempt at their life like these things haven't changed yet we feel like we're progressing as a society so there's there's the big elephant in the room which is which is mental illness and mental wellness um and they imp it impacts everything right um for me with with my ptsd that leads into anxiety and depression there are times when especially in high stress states i i can't get out of bed um i physically can't get out because i'm mentally and un unable to do anything that day um, and that impacts everything. If we're talking about occupations and daily routines, I, I'm not able to engage in occupations. I'm not maybe able to go to work. Uh, there were times where I wasn't able to make it into school and that affects other things and that increases stress. And then you get sick and it's the cycle um, that people with disabilities, marginalized people, minoritized folks experience at much higher rates than you know, those um, that wouldn't fit into those categories. Yeah, exactly. And I think when you when you are also somebody with who you know has a disability a diabetes let's try again has a disability for instance like like cp you know there's a study out there that i've seen on social media a bunch that when you have cp three you're three to four times more likely to live with depression or live with anxiety and have those things and so the trouble with that is that when you say to a say to a healthcare professional i have depression they go oh yeah well of course you would it's just cp and you're like, great, well, could you, are you going to treat it? Or are you just going to like say that it's because of CP? So I understand when you're saying that we need to do so much more in terms of the data and putting, putting the numbers of like, what are the comorbidities between, between stress and anxiety and disability and chronic illness? And how do those things come together? That's part of why I started on my social media a while ago. I started that I have crippling anxiety thing that I've been doing just because I, I like to talk about the connection between depression and anxiety and disability because it's not something that we often pair together even though it's so prevalent I think. Yeah I think that as, as being someone who's a healthcare professional I think that a lot of other healthcare professionals get caught in assumptions and writing things off so they they're like oh well you have CP of course you have depression but it's like also your depression or what you're experiencing in terms of depression at that moment may not be directly related to your CP. It could be related to anything else going on in your life. It could be worsened by your experiences um, as being a person with CP and how honestly shitty other people are. Um, but I think a lot of times where people go wrong is they just make an assumption like, oh, this is something you should expect kind of live with it. Um, and I think there's also a difference between um, feeling depressed and having depression. And I think not everyone may understand the difference between those two things. And sometimes that's why mental um, illness is written off as something that's not as serious as it is, because we can all feel depressed, but having depression or having anxiety um, is much different than feeling anxious in a moment um, when it's actually something that is navigated on a day-to-day -day basis and not just in a moment of stress. Yeah, of course. How, how does your anxiety impact your kind of professionalism as an OT because yeah. typically when 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 I go see an OT I expect like 
an uber professional person to like enter the room and tell me all the things that I haven't done and give me all this homework to, to like fix my body and then leave the room. How do you, how does your experience of anxiety and depression impact your OT-ness? Well, first, that sounds like a terrible OT. Um, second, <laughs> um, fortunately, uh, it, it took me a long time to get to accepting the fact that I needed medication to support me being regulated. Um, but now that I do take medication for anxiety, life is so much better. Um, I am actually able to regulate myself where prior to taking medication, I was able to cope a little bit, but not regulate myself um, because anxiety really leads to a lot of sensory experiences too, um, where a lot of normal sensations can become overwhelming. Um, for me, I'm, my anxiety most frequently plays out as irritability, which you can imagine is not the trait you want in a healthcare professional or no. someone directing a rehab team. So for me, um, taking my medication is super important. And then also being really mindful um, after years and years of therapy, being really mindful to check myself and, and understand like when I need to remove myself from a situation, when I need to walk, honestly breathing, taking a deep breath is like a huge pause to kind of just let me address the situation. So um, I'm not perfect at times. It definitely still will spill into, I mean, how I go about work, but I, I don't think, I think I'm pretty good at hiding that for patients because for me, I, I'm really, really passionate about OT and I take my job very seriously. So when I'm with a patient, it's like super game on and I can kind of check everything else away and really focus on someone else. And for me, that's therapeutic, you know, um, to really just have full focus on someone else in their body and, and take myself out of the equation for a bit. Yeah, I would maybe suggest as you go further into your journey of like discovering whether or not you have a disability. I, given what you've told me, I would, I would say that depression at some points can be a disability. And I would also say that anxiety can be a disability at points. Um, but again, it's your journey. But I would say that if you, if you put it in a professional context and tell people that, like that might be actually a, a tool in your toolkit to, you know, offer, offer, disabled clients you see who might be struggling you can say you know what I live with this too I have anxiety like this too and here's mm -hmm. how it manifests for me and here's how maybe we can work on things to help you disabled client work on yours you know um I do do that that's actually important we talk about at least in OT we talk about something called therapeutic use of self um so if it's therapeutic if I I work with a lot of people who experience disability do also experience a parallel of uh, anxiety and depression, you know, people, yeah. especially with working in um, a skilled nursing facility, like it goes without saying no one wants to be in a skilled nursing facility. It, no one has a goal of ending up there. It's not that we can't make that time the most enjoyable for people and help them get back to what they were doing before, but no one's happy to be there. Um, oftentimes people who end up in a skilled nursing facility have a lot of their own autonomy and independence taken away, which leads to anxiety, depression, and other things manifesting in mental illness. So, yeah. um, you know, when people enter, enter any type of medical facility, a lot of their ability to make choices about their own life and themselves is stripped to an extent. So what people can control at times is how they talk to others, how they, you know, think about themselves, how they think about others when they can't make decisions about necessarily everything they do with their life. Um, so it's important for me to share with patients, uh, especially when it's therapeutic, that 
I have anxiety and this is, this is what helps me and it may not help you, um, but we can explore a bunch of things together and find out what does help you because anxiety has so many different colors that mine doesn't look the same as yours, which doesn't look at the same as someone else's. So um, it's important to me to share those things. I think it's, it's valuable to be open um, as a healthcare professional to share humanity with patients so that I'm not just, you know, this person in scrubs or a white coat that's coming in and <laughs> telling them all the things they did wrong and, and throwing homework at them that I'm a person and I experience big emotions too. And, and um, you know, mental illness and it's real and this is how I go through it and I can help you go through it too. And, and that's been really impactful. That's, that's awesome. And I think also like if you, if saying I'm a disabled person is at some point something you do, you can then also use that as part of your profession to be like, I have a disability too. Like, like what I love about Dr. Tiku is that she'll say to people, you know, I, I have this, I have this. And she'll use that to, to um, in her practice sometimes. So that might be something you could do eventually that will, I think, give patients some sort of like, oh, oh, they get it. They understand what right. I'm going through a little bit. Um, I wanted also to look at my next question, which which is, let me pull it up. I'm so professional. Um, so we talked about how, how um, your anxiety impacts your role as an OT a little bit and the, what you've done to do that. I, I, the next question I have for you is, how do you think that your queerness as an OT impacts your role as an OT? Um, I'm excited for this question. So I think I want to split this up into like two different mini topics about my queerness, but also my gender identity. Um, I didn't share at the beginning. I didn't, I also didn't share my pronouns. So, um, my pronouns are they and he, um, both are best for me. So it's best to switch back and forth between the two. Um, and I identify as non-binary. Um, ultimately I, I don't identify as non-binary identify as dev, but if I were to have some sort of identifying term that's close to how I feel my body, non-binary would be the term that I use. Um, so queerness, um, it, it, it fully impacts, I mean, everything that I do in my life, um, especially as a healthcare professional. Um, you can't see my whole garb right now, but I wear heels to work. Um, I wear dangly earrings. I have- oh my God, I, I love you. I have eyeshadow on, I have mascara. It's, I've arrived to a place where, um, and I also told you I'm inspired by your, I don't give a fuckery. Um, so I've arrived to this place where um, that's kind of where I'm at because it's not unprofessional for me to be queer. It's not unprofessional for me to be non-binary or wear heels if it's in a dress code that someone can. Um, I'm able to too, if I wanna wear leggings and that's something professional, I will do that. Um, so for me, there's a lot of layers to this. Um, as a student on field work and as an early practitioner, um, I've been an OT for, for two and a half years now. Um, I've had several patients refuse care. Um, I didn't necessarily share my identity with them, but they made assumptions, whether it's based off of my uh, vocal tone, my mannerisms, what have you, um, where they've said, well, I don't want that person treating me because of this, that, or the other thing. And I've certainly wow. been- Yeah, um, which, I think the first encounter, it felt very personal because I didn't anticipate it. I think now um, I'm able to, in a way, compartmentalize it. But, um, you know, sometimes I'm working with someone who has a traumatic brain injury and they 
don't have they they may not at that time have the skills that they had before in terms of like social cues and understanding that so they may say things that are just like off the cuff that they may not really mean or may not have awareness to so that I'm able to cope with um I also don't have to subject myself to harassment in the workplace so if if there's a relationship you know with a patient that's not therapeutic for me I feel best if they're with another therapist because my ultimate goal, regardless of how I feel of them as a person, is that I want what's best for them. I want them to reach what their personal goals are and it's okay if that's not with me. I know I'm, I'm a fabulous therapist and I am that bitch, um, yeah. but, but I'm, I, and I know I'm everything to me, but I'm not everything to everyone. So that's not personal to me because I'm not willing to compromise who I am or how I go about my day anymore. There was a time where I did that Um, I would code switch a lot at work where I would, you know, be super mask for mask and, um, you know, all of tucking away all of my what I I think is magical about me so that I could, you know, get through a day and have any person, you know, be fine with me being their therapist, but that's not as important to me anymore. Um, I think me being me is what's important. I think taking up space is what's important. I work in a very rural and conservative area where, um, you know, people tote their Confederate flags and may have voted for a specific previous president. So me being a queer non-binary OT that is the director of rehab that wears heels and dangly earrings is political. And that's a statement. And I feel it's I important. I fucking to love it. I fucking, I think it's so great. And oh my, if I, cause like I said, the majority of my OTs in my life have been middle-aged cis women who, and they were nice and super great, but like, I don't think in my whole experience of an OT of occupational therapy have I met a non-binary like dangly earring wearing like heel wearing OT so that's fucking awesome and I think it's great it's you know I've had mixed responses I actually had a little um cute old lady tell me today that my shoes were stupid and that's the best thing she could say about them but I also Uh. had an older gentleman the other day tell me if I have an extra pair of heels he wants to try them on so you know it's um and he would make jokes if I wore my like four heels because I everyone knows on meeting days when I don't have to treat as many patients that's like my big heel day that's the four inch and I mean business and you hear me coming down the hallway um so the he would always ask me on meeting days when I'm you know basically touching the ceiling because I'm six one um so with four inch heels I'm six five and I'm already a rather big person so it's you know I I quite literally take up space but also figuratively do and he'd be like how's the weather up there and you know make really lighthearted jokes about it so it was interesting that I had more of an open response from patients who identify as male than than female um you know she is who she is it doesn't bother me I'm like well my shoes aren't stupid so what (laughs) um I thought that of course it's you know I don't need to interact with her on that on that moment but um yeah so queerness does impact my practice I think um I'm much more open about my queerness in practice especially with patients I don't I don't care I don't hide it um you know I I am who I am I think at times um what is a little bit more difficult to navigate is saying I have a different gender identity that I'm non-binary and even just like unpacking what that word means to people is sometimes too large of a concept. So I choose my battles if I want to invest energy into that or not. But um, so yeah, it, it, it totally does. It, it affects how I, I view people too. Um, being a person who has been marginalized, has been tokenized and pushed to the side in multiple accounts in society and, and professional venues, I, 
I have a feeling of what that feels like. I have a lot of empathy for that. So it allows me to relate more deeply to patients um, on yeah. several levels. Yeah. That's great. I, I think it's, I, again, I, I don't think I've ever met a, a non-binary OT before. So like, that's really cool. And I, like, I also am using they and he pronouns and, and I, like, they is something that I'm coming into ter- into terms with more and, and something that I'm allowing myself to just explore and, like, try and see if it fits. And the more and more I use it, the more and more I like it because it, it doesn't force me to be confined to what maleness is supposed to be. And, like, I can still be, I can still like to suck all the dicks that I want, but I don't have to be, I don't have to, you know what I mean? I don't have to play into those roles. But I agree with you with, in certain spaces as someone who uses they and he, you do often feel like you have to hide parts of that for your own safety and for, so you don't have to have a big conversation. Um, we've talked a little bit about, a little bit about how the patients view you. What about some of your colleagues at your workplace? How do they see all this? You know, um, where I'm at now, going back to it being conservative and, and maybe not the most open-minded location, um, for the most part, it's it's been great. Um, part of the reason why I accepted the role as director of rehab is because I wanted to have a seat at the big table, making big decisions in the direction of, of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. So um, now at work, we are going to be having in-services that are mandatory. Um, which is great that the administrator mandated them, uh, that everyone has to attend. And I am gonna be talking about all the queer stuff. I'm gonna be talking about um, sex and intimacy and masturbation and vibrators and all of the things that we need to provide to patients or ask them about. We're gonna be talking about all the letters and gender identity and, and sensitivity about language. And so I'm really excited to have the opportunity to take what I do as a passion and, and kind of as private contract work um, into the workplace and really start a cultural shift there. So they've been great. Um, we had a really long conversation this past week about gender identity where I did share, I haven't I haven't talked about it, I haven't not talked about it, but I haven't had like the big conversation about me being non-binary at work. So I had that conversation last week and it inspired a really good conversation with people asking questions that were good questions to ask and, and really like getting down to some nitty and gritty of stuff. So. Um, I've been fortunate in that sense. There's also been some sour apples, but like, I ain't got time for you. So um, the work, you know, we, I worked with a, a transgender uh, nursing assistant and um, nursing aide and, and she, one of the, the nurses that wasn't there for a long time for good reason, um, intentionally misgendered her and just was gross. And the way that administration dealt with that was the right way to deal with it. And um, so that was one of the reasons also that I decided to stay at this facility because um, I knew that I would feel safe in, in a large context. Good, I mean, it's, I know that that coming out as they and coming out as non-binary and all these identities that we encompass are not easy. So what else? And I'm going to go back to disability for a minute. When, when and if you do decide to, to explore that more, if you need help coming out in that way, let me know because I know how hard that is too. So I commend you for what you're doing. Well, and likewise, I mean, I, I've um, been able to 
explore a lot of gender identity. I used he, him pronouns for 18 years of my life. Then I exclusively use they, them pronouns and I've arrived at this place. And um, so if you ever want to chat about your, your nonlinear experiences with pronouns and gender identity, I'm, I'm here for it any day. Um, I mean, we should definitely I, connect off the air because I have feeling, I have a lot of feelings, but a lot of stuff. Oh, we're we're gonna be we're friends now. We're co unicorns. Yeah. You you uh, Sakshi and I are all unicorns together. I see. I listen. <laughs> um, but I do wanna I do wanna unpack something because I know uh, Dr. Tiku actually mentioned this in her episode. Um, but I don't I don't um, subscribe to or endorse the term coming out anymore. And I wanna I wanna talk about that. Oh, cool. Um, that's okay. That's ex- okay. Yeah. So. The intention's not bad, but what happens when we talk about coming out, um, and this is really going to have to be a culture shift within the queer community itself, but coming out is, um, when we talk about, I'm going to go off on a whole tangent now, when we talk about power, um, or we talk about something be, being political, um, when we, especially when I talk about politics in, in healthcare, I'm not talking about bipartisan, Democrat, Republican, whatever. Um, I'm talking about someone or some people who have power and typically another group that doesn't. So what happens when we talk about coming out is that um, that process, that word gives the power to people and not to the person. So when we, you know, there's never a time ever when some cis hetero person, you know, makes this groundbreaking Facebook status where they're like, yep, just in case you're wondering, I am in fact cisgender and straight. I know you were all wondering, (laughs) you've been assuming it for years. You're right. I am straight. That's not a thing or pressure we put on a large, you know, population. So why are we doing that for other people? It's not necessary. So instead of talking about it in terms of coming out and taking the power away from the person, we shift the language to letting others in. I actually, um, I have to credit this to Karamo Brown from Queer Eye because I, in some dark hole of Queer Eye content on YouTube, I found an interview and he touched on this lightly. And so when we talk about letting others in, that shifts all of the power to the person. I, I know who I am and I get to choose who I tell, how much I tell, um, what I tell um, to them. And that's you know, really how the process should be. Yeah. And, you know, that's super connected to disability because oftentimes we have to let people in to our experiences and to our world and let them in in, in ways that are hard and ways that are really difficult. And what I do, I think, is kind of what you just said, letting people into my experience as a queer, disabled person. And so... I fully understand the idea of you have to choose when you let somebody in, how you let them in. You and you don't always let them in entirely 100% of the time right away. You like give them little bits, then you yeah. see how they digest that. And so, with my disability experience and chronic illness and all those, those things, it's how much can I tell you before you run away? Yep. How much can I tell you before you don't want to be here anymore? And I think it's also when we're having these conversations that are vulnerable and personal, it's also like, how much can I tell you where you're actually listening and digesting at like, where, how can I, you know, gauging their, their threshold for what they're able to actually listen to. Cause I don't, I don't want to just talk at you and, and not have you critically think about what I'm talking about when I'm talking about my identity and my experiences. I want you to think about that because a lot of times I'm having these conversations with cisgender and heterosexual folks that don't have this lived experience. So, and it's also like your own energy level. Um, I don't always have that. These conversations are emotionally taxing, mostly on me. Um, mostly it's the person that you're 
you know, the marginalized person that's burdened with having these conversations over and over and over again. So sometimes I don't want to let others in all the way because I'm simply tired of having the conversation that day or that week. So yeah. it, it shifts the power to you. And that's where it should be. I don't, I don't owe you information about myself. I will let you into what I want to tell you based on how our experiences are. But if I don't feel like you're a safe person, if I don't feel like you're going to affirm or respect that, it's, it may not be worth my time or my energy to let you into that information. So I'm really passionate about shifting that language and the idea around coming out. I think that there's a lot of good intention with it. Um, but I put coming out in the same box as I put, you know, when we're filling out an intake form or any type of form and it says male, female or other, you know, other is well-intentioned, but it's also an alienating term and I'm not other. So like, let's just leave a blank space for someone to fill in what they want to fill in instead of putting people in boxes. I think that there's a lot of times where we do things that are well-intentioned, but it's also just pretty easy to take it the extra step that is is so much more better and impactful. Well, it's like when somebody uses the word handicapable, mm. or use the word, you know- the, Other abled, I think is another one, or differently yeah, abled. I, I mean, I've heard all those and like, yeah. those, don't, those don't hit for me. There are some people that mm. I know who use and choose to use differently abled for themselves and that's fine. But, it, but what I'm talking about is when like an able-bodied person will be be around like one person with a disability in a group and they'll be like yes everybody with all abilities and it's like well but you can also say like disability too Mm -hmm. you can say that and it's all right and so like i think like you say the well-intentionedness is there but we have to interrogate why can't we just say disabled people or why can't we just let them choose what they want to call themselves right so I full and in terms of like your journey with queerness and non-binaryness, I, I totally get that. And I totally understand and feel in sync with the idea of letting someone in. Cause I do that all the time with my care workers. I do that all the time with my sex workers. I do that all the time with people that I engage with because many people have never engaged with a disabled person like me before. Right. Yeah. And when they think of just to bring it back to disability for a second, when they think of a disabled person, they think of like, somebody in a sleek sexy racing chair they don't consider somebody with complex disabilities who can't do a lot of things and so it's jarring for them and so I I think I am really good at compartmentalizing what I want to share and when I want to share and how I want to share yep um but I want to shift to sex for a minute because this is a sexy podcast and you've heard me uh, you heard me ask Dr. Tiku and you've heard on the Handicast with Heather and I where we, we interrogate, um, you know, why OTs might have such a hard time talking about sexuality and disability with their patients and clients. And I wonder from you being so open about your sexuality and your experiences, why do you think that OTs have such a hard time with this? Oh, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I ask myself this a lot. Um, I, I'm not the only OT at my work, but I am the only OT that addresses these things. And I think there's several reasons. I think um, most of it all comes from, though, uh, the person themselves. I think, how do I want to word this? Um, and Dr. Tiku, <laughs> Dr. Tiku worded this in the podcast. I just love her. She, she was like, you know, your provider is your bitch. You know, they, they're to do what you want them to do. And so I think that um, to, you know, an extent that is, that's a hundred percent true. And so 
for me, um, there's a lot of things that I may not be comfortable with. Um, I treat a lot of very religious folks. My experience with the church is traumatic, um, but I still provide them the same services I provide to other people. I still work around building a routine around their spirituality or spiritual practices. So I think a lot of it is just arriving to the space where the focus is on the person. When it's on the person, your own comfort zone, your own um, biases, your own, you know, live... I know thoughts on certain subjects are irrelevant. It's not about you. The issue comes from when the providers, whether it's a PT, an OT, a nurse, whoever, um, makes it about themselves and not the client. Um, I work with a lot of women. Um, I'm not the most, well, I'm not well-versed in things having to do with the vulva. Um, that's, you know, not my lived experience, but I go into that room and we talk about sex and I talk about vibrators and stimulating areas because that's what the client needs. I think when you just simplify it to that, it's not difficult. I think it becomes, or it's perceived as being difficult from people when they insert their own biases and themselves into the situation, because it's not right. about them. Right, and I, I love that. And I like how, how succinctly you put that. It isn't about them, it's about the person you're, you're working with. Do you feel like your identities as a non-binary and queer person um, have, have made it easier for you to have these conversations? Hmm. Yeah, um, I think so, because just having conversations around those topics can be, you know, difficult conversations. So I think just navigating, I'm making air quotes for those who can't see me, you know, difficult conversations, um, it, it just became easier from that experience. But I think also, like, we can talk about queer, you know, sex health. I don't know um, necessarily what, you know, public education and, and sex ed looks like in Canada, I can probably make assumptions. It's that pretty it's bad. You, you can, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah, not great. It's so not like, great. Um, I'm sure you can relate. Like I never learned about um, prepping for bottoming or what douching looks like for a, Me a neither. I or, never learned about topping a, a person either. I didn't know any of that. No, I, I, wish of that. We were little, I wish we taught that we're taught that. Yeah. So for me, it's like, I've had to have these conversations with so many people. So, you know, talking about whatever, um, I, I'll admit, like, even in, in my years of practice, I've, de I've become much more comfortable and also worked on not inserting myself into these situations. And it's made a huge difference in me having conversations about anything. But I do think just in general, being queer and understanding, like, these are things we have to talk about and not talking about them is what leads to negative health outcomes. And, you know, when we talk about those things, it's prevention um, it's, that's good practice. That's good health. It's when we don't talk about these things that we lead to negative health outcomes. Um, so I think kind of all of that combined, but also, you know, really centered around my own queerness and my gender identity has made those conversations easier, but I've just been having conversations. Like I was in a program with all, uh, almost all, uh, cis, uh, hetero white women. So, I'd raise the question and be like, so when are we gonna talk about like helping a client who had a stroke that wants to have anal sex? Like we're talking about like sidelining for someone who has a colostomy bag, but when are we gonna talk about these other things? And having all of the jaws drop because I said the word anal, um, you know, in a class or talked or said the word sex, I, it's just been something I've had to navigate for so long. I think that's why it's comfortable because it's not something we talk about. Um, even in the workplace, I, a week ago, um, I'm still having to do sensitivity training around the word masturbation because it's not like a giggly word. It's literally just a wow. thing. Yeah. And this is with like full-fledged adults that are twice to three times my age that are providing care that can't, you know, simply say that word without giggling. So 
I think it's just like someone has to do it and I'm happy doing it. Um, you should direct them to the handy book of love, lust, and disability where we have a whole chapter about masturbation. Oh, don't worry. I will be using your resources um, and having the company pay for your resources and part of the education that's already, it goes without saying. So amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Um, um, there was a question that I had in my head that I now forget what it is. And I had, didn't write it down. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to ask this. And now I don't know what I was going to say. Um, uh, let me pull up my other question that I wrote down so I can pretend again that I'm a professional. Don't worry, folks. This is what this is how I do. I promise I wrote it down. Um, so to that end, actually, I want to switch out the questions a bit. I want, I'll do the last one first and then, then, then the one after. So because we want to interrogate ableism in all our, in everything we do, especially in OT, and the, and unfortunately, the 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 profession you've chosen is rife with ableism, as I'm sure you know. Can you think of any times that you yourself, as an occupational therapist, has have brushed up against ableism, and how oh, did you yeah. how did you work through that? I think. Um... I think it kind of goes along with that trend we talked about earlier, like writing people off um, sometimes. And it, this is something that I have to constantly unlearn for myself is that we see a diagnosis or we see, we see something on a sheet and we automatically make assumptions about what that person is going to be able to do. Or, oh, my favorite is like when a doctor says like, this person has three months to live. And then like, we treat them as if they're dying for those three months when like, sometimes they just never die. Um, so I think in a lot of those cases, like, that, that is ableism and making assumptions about what someone's capacity is and limiting them to what my thoughts about what their ability is based off of what I see in a piece of paper. Um, so I oftentimes, all the healthcare professionals are going to shriek, but I don't, I do chart reviews. I read information about people, but I don't pay attention to their gender marker. I don't pay attention to their age necessarily. Um, and I don't always pay attention to their entire diagnostic list because that's, I don't diagnose. That's not necessarily always important to me unless it has to do with like um, you know, they have limitations in blood pressure or whatever, and I have to be careful about what I do with them. But for the most part, specific words don't matter, especially in OT. That's a little bit how it's different. My focus is on uh, occupations, how they spend their time, what they do, and getting them back to doing those things, whether it's in the same way or with equipment or in a different way. So for me, um, not allowing myself to, to make those assumptions um, has been how I, I work to combat, you know, I think it's even, I don't want to say it's like blind ableism, but it's something that happens in every facility, all the place, all over where we see something, we make assumption about everything that person is capable of before we even see them. Um, yeah. I'm sure that's uh, probably your lived experience also. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it happens all the time, especially in your profession. Like, um, oh yeah. The question that I wanted to ask you was since you brought up anal, um, which is one of my favorite things to do. P.S. Everyone listening, I'd like to, to give it to people. Um, I wonder as an OT, because my as you've heard me share on the show a number of times, my first experience with an OT was quite, or my first experience talking about sex in an OT was less than favorable. Yeah, They were less than kind to me and they ran out of the room. So if I could pose to you, how would you advise somebody who wants to get better at fucking with a disability like mine well what advice would you offer so for me a lot of times it's navigating so you have a goal right so let's say it's topping 
Um, And then usually there's something in the middle from having that idea you want to do it and achieving that, that may not, you know, lead you to that, that goal of, of topping. So a lot of times what OTs should do is that, you know, all the OTs out there are going to be like activity analysis, um, but really looking at what in the middle is stopping you from getting somewhere or, you know, is it endurance? Is it, um, do you need equipment? Is it positioning? Um, Okay, do well, you let need me, let me let me lay it out it's that i can't i my hands can't i can't thrust so um then for you uh if it's not if it's it has to do with mobility then i would look at um props and positioning um because if we're talking about you have to be able to move in a certain way we know that you know gravity plays a role so you being on um on the bottom and having someone be on top of you and writing may be very difficult because you have to work against that person's body and gravity. Um, So where we're in a plane where we can eliminate gravity, sidelining is typically that position, but that can also be difficult in thrusting. So really, if I'm talking about you personally, uh, well, we can take it off the air and and really go into- Oh no, do it on the air, tell them. You know, is it, do your hips, is it your hips are tight? Is it- Yes. Yeah. do you work with a PT on, or, or anyone on, on tone work? Or do you, do any of your caregivers like do range of motion to loosen tone? Do you no, have tone? Big, yes. My tone is always, even when I'm relaxed, my tone is a two. Okay. So, um, and does anything, what makes you feel most relaxed or in terms of like your muscles in your body? I mean, honestly, after I come. Okay. And are you able to do that multiple times in a row or do you need a break in between? I need a break in between. Okay. So um, there's a, this is, I haven't had to navigate it like this before. So this is fun for me. Um, Okay. So tight hips, thrusting. What position are you typically in? Like what? I'm on my back in dead turtle, which is just me flat on my back. Kind of like in the starfish position, unable to like do anything. And then the sex worker you know does the majority of the work and kind of fucks himself with my dick which is fine and i enjoy that but like i feel oftentimes because i can't thrust i'm somehow missing out on something okay have you ever tried having sex inside lying no okay so let's try that first this is if i'm going to give you homework i'm not going to tell you all the things you're not doing my homework is to have sex inside lying Yes. Um, and then tell me if that ma- what if that makes any difference because sometimes gravity really makes a difference that we don't you know attend to as much. So a sideline position, gravity is still pulling on you, but it's not pulling down in the terms of you're trying to go up against it. Yeah. So if you're in a sideline position, um, and or if you had maybe a pillow propping under your hips so that your ability to you know stick your dick inside would be easier. If you were kind of down, if you had, if you're propped on your side, facing downward a little bit more, then you can use gravity to your advantage so that you're thrusting somewhat on the side and a little bit at a down angle. So you can use gravity to help pull you down, but it's not, um, not allowing you to thrust. So that would be my first recommendation. I just need to tell you, that's the first time in ever that I've had a really, truly honest conversation with an OT about the thing I want to talk about about thrusting and about like and I, and I wanted to have this question answered for 12 13 years so and you're the first ot in i mean i don't even think i had the conversation with dr tiku or 
um, the the OT in Australia we talked to. I don't think we really got in there. So I really appreciate that we just did that because that's the kind of stuff that a lot of OTs won't do. What you, what you and I just did. That doesn't happen. Well, my advice to them is maybe evaluate the profession you joined in. Because this wasn't, I don't, you know, this is not, this isn't a hard conversation. It's fun to navigate. And all I did was look at what your what was holding you back from doing something and provided some simple thing, simple mechanic, that's body mechanics. We learned that in kinesiology. Every, every OT has the tool to tell you what I just told you. Um, so it's a little alarming to me that someone couldn't recommend a pillow in a different position. Um, it's that they can't say the word thrust. Thrust, that's not even hard. Or like, like dick. Like or like pounding. It's not like know, we just, yeah. Or like come they, they don't i mean everyone on the podcast that i've talked to has talked about this stuff with me but not in such a such a real way so i really i, I truly appreciate that because i wasn't expecting this question but there it is and it was perfect so that's great um on that note what uh, advice would you give to other ot's or other educational therapists who want to be more inclusive but don't quite know how to do that Okay. Um, so here's a few things we can do. Um, there are resources out there. I, if you want to, if you have no idea where to start and you want to get started, come over and chat at the Rainbow OT and I'll send you where you may want to start and go. Um, I'm happy to have those conversations or send you to resources. There are some resources out there. I will say a lot of resources to learn about having these conversations come from cis hetero white women OTs. So they're they're trying to be inclusive, but they're not coming from a lived experience. And they that's a really important part of these types of conversations. So if you're if it's in terms of talking about just um, you know, sex, then let's just start there and I can point you in the direction of, of where we can start. We can have a conversation and uh, role play uh, what a conversation with a patient looks like. A lot of times people just need a handholding through it to kind of get through that first time. Um, and then, yeah, I think that's, you can come to me to get started if you have no, no idea where to get started. I think um, being in tune with your own sexuality and what you like and what feels good for your body, a lot of people aren't. Um, I can actually thank Dr. Tiku for that because uh, Dr. Tiku did a whole series on body mapping. Um, and a lot of my, uh, my experience with PTSD was from sexual assault. So um, engaging in sex really up until the past few years for me is something that sometimes no matter how much I want, my body would not allow that to happen. Um, so body mapping was a huge thing for me. If, if you're not comfortable in what feels good for your own body and navigating that with yourself, you're not gonna be comfortable um, navigating that with someone else. So I think um, looking to some resources, Dr. Tiku is a wonder, that's where you should go first, sex, love, and OT. Um, go first and then also come to me if you have more questions. But I think it's A, being in tune with yourself. Um, like we talked about before, um, it's not about you. So if you're not having these conversations, I'm sorry, but you're making it about you, so stop. Um, and the next time you do an evaluation with a patient, ask them if they're sexually active and start there. Um, if they say yes, don't die. Um, because then you've opened the door to have this conversation about, okay, this is, this is something that might have to be a goal for you. This might be a goal for them. I can tell you um, at least 75% of the time when I ask someone if they're sexually active, that opens up an entire door where I usually have to, I usually build a goal around some sort of intimate activity. Um, so you are missing, you're not providing the best care to 
any or all of your patients um, and that is your fault and do better. So um, <laughs> uh, I think it's taking yourself out of it too. There's a lot of like personal work to do, but get in touch with your body, get in touch with some resources and get in touch with um, how you think about things, other people and other people's bodies, because when you do a little bit of work there, um, these conversations become very easy to have. That's awesome. And I am officially out of all the questions we wrote down. So is there any, any last thing you want to say or talk about before we end today? Um, gosh, I'm a talker. Usually I can just take up all the time, but I think we, I'm, I'm happy with what we covered. Um, is there anything you can think of? I mean, I think, I think we did pretty good. I enjoyed myself yeah. and, I, and thank you for the, for the quick uh, pro bono diagnostic, like, how can Andrew fuck his sex worker better? Listen, thank you. I appreciate that. Seriously, though, let's we'll we'll keep this conversation going because I want to know if that works and if it's not, we'll go back to the drawing board. But um, I guess this was just an on the fly, real way to have a conversation about that. I'm not. I'm. I don't think I'm an expert, <laughs> um, and you don't have to be to have that conversation. So look at what Andrew and I just did in probably five minutes. It took us to have this that conversation, and that's been yeah. a goal for how many years for you? Like 13, 14. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I'm sorry to you because uh, if any of your previous OTs are listening to this, you did wrong and do better the next time. Um, seriously, I, I, I'm unapologetic. There really is no tolerance for it um, because when you, you know, insert yourself into the scenario when you don't belong there, you almost always cause harm to someone and that's wrong. That's, that's not what we do. So do better. It's okay to recognize that you have to do better. So just do better. All right, Dev, what is, how do the people get a hold of you? How do they follow you? How do they support you? Um, the best place to find me where I'm most active is at the Rainbow OT on Instagram. Um, from there, you'll be able to find my website, which is therainbowot.com. And uh, if you want to book me for um, lectures or classwork or anything like that uh you can email me at the rainbow t at gmail.com and we can chat about that get that um, money get that paper yeah listen if y'all want the resources you can pay me for it um and i'm looking at all of you universities out there that try to have your student groups ask me to come talk for free when you have a whole budget for it so talk hit me up me too. Hey, yeah yes. and hire if you're gonna have people have these conversations have people that represent the populations you're having conversations about to have yes. the conversation so all these OT schools out there, I know you talk about disability and I know you talk about sex. So hire Andrew to talk about disability and sex at the same time. Together. Wow. Shocker. And I'll come, I'll wear my leathers and I'll, it'll be super prerogative. No, I'm kidding. But, <laughs> but, um, Dev, the rainbow OT, thank you so much for coming on today. This was such a fun, fun, fun on the fly chat we had. Well, thank you for having me. I have been looking forward to this for so long. And like I said, um, I aspire to be more like you. So just thank you for this space and and yeah, everything. Oh, well, thank you. And I hope that your journey with deciding whether or not disability fits for you goes well. And if, again, if you want to ever chat about that, you know where to go. Well, I'll be hitting you up. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right, Deb, we will talk very soon. And again, thanks so much for coming on Disability After Dark. Bye. Thank you. Bye. All right, friends, that's another episode of Disability After Dark from me, your disabled daddy, Andrew Gerza. If you want to follow my work, you can follow me on social media on Instagram and Twitter at Andrew Gerza underscore 
Or you can follow my website, www.andrewgerza.com, to find out more about what I do. And of course, you can follow us on Patreon to get the show one day early and completely ad-free by going to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark. Or you can send us an email to disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com and let us know your ideas for an episode, for a minisode, or for a guest spot. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back to shine a bright light on your disabled stories next time. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Drew Gerza and Wheels on the Ground Productions. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music, are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright 2020-2021